You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. Father, Son, and Spirit, you are such a good and gracious God. We are bound to your grace, though we are prone to wander from it. We are drawn back to it again and again as we gather together week by week. So we do pray that you would reveal your grace to us now in the reading and preaching of your word, that you would illumine the, both, both the reading and preaching through the power of your spirit, that we might be those who don't just read and listen and walk away, but who respond in obedience to your word with the whole of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Good morning, Third Family. It's great to see you. I'm Corey. I'm one of the pastors here at Third and saying welcome to all of y'all that are here today. Um, If you're new or if you're just jumping in um, this January, we are actually in our third of a little three-week mini-series on a a little book in the New Testament called Philemon. Um, This often overlooked book um, is yet very power-packed in the story that it tells about grace. Um, And just to catch you up a little bit, give you some context of where we are, Um, Paul is the author of this book, the Apostle Paul. This is the shortest of any of his letters that he wrote in the New Testament. Um, And he is writing to his dear friend, Philemon. And Philemon is a leader of the church that meets in the ancient city, Colossae. Philemon is a generous person, a a loving person, and he's also someone who hosts uh, the house church in his own home. He's also a slave owner. And he had a slave named Onesimus, who ran away, uh, most likely stole something from the household and ran away, became a fugitive. And he somehow found his way to the Apostle Paul, who was in house arrest in Rome. And in the process of getting to know Paul, he became a follower of Jesus. He became a Christian. And so at the occasion of this letter, Paul is sending Onesimus, this young man, back to his former master with this letter in hand. And Paul is urging Philemon to forgive Onesimus, to be reconciled to him, and ultimately, as we will see today, to receive him back no longer as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. The great message of this book is grace changes everything. First week, we looked at how it changes people. It changes us personally from the inside out. Last week, we looked at how grace changes relationships, how how we manage conflict, especially in relationships. And today, we're gonna see how grace has, has a wide impact on actually changing the social order, changing the world itself. Grace changes everything. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you to open them to the book of Philemon. It's this little page in between Titus and Hebrews. And um, you might open an app on your phone or just listen if you'd like. I'm gonna read starting in verse 12 all the way to the end of the book, which is just very short, verse 25. So hear God's word. I, Paul, am sending him Onesimus, who is very, my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother." He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, 
Welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention you owe me, your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, and Aristarchus, and Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. So October 19th, 1781, the British general Cornwallis was trapped on a peninsula on one side by this young American army, and behind him, he was cut off at the sea by the French. And in a shocking, truly shocking twist that no one ever could have predicted or even imagined at that point in history, Cornwallis surrendered the British army there at Yorktown, effectively bringing the Revolutionary War to an end. Uh, now, legend has it that as the British marched out of Yorktown that day, um, their band played a tune called The World Turned Upside Down. The World Turned Upside Down. And of course, this is where Lin-Manuel Miranda was inspired to write you know, the famous 20th song in his great musical. The World Turned Upside Down. A gang of uncultured colonists turned rebels had won a war against the greatest army in the world. And now these rebels were to be treated as equals as citizens of a free and independent nation. I mean, it's hard to imagine what it must have felt like at that moment. A new social order was being born. The world, as people knew it up to that point, was being turned upside down. I just think that is such a great metaphor for what Paul is describing about the impact of the gospel in the world. His whole message, not just here in Philemon, but throughout all of his letters, his whole message is that something shocking has happened. Something unexpected has occurred. Do you know what it is? Grace. God's grace has entered into the world through the person of Jesus Christ and in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, God has, 2 Corinthians 5, reconciled the world to himself through Christ. Human beings who are completely cut off, estranged, separated from God, have been offered totally undeserved forgiveness, love, acceptance, eternal life in and through this person, Jesus. God has said yes to humanity through Jesus. And now Paul is convinced that this grace, this grace that has come to us in Jesus is not just changing people, it's changing everything. It's, it's changing the world. It turns the world upside down. You know, sometimes I think we think about grace as Christians as just being a very personal part of the Christian life. We sing the great songs, you know, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, It Saved a Wretch Like Me, and that's true. It's very, very true. But grace is, I want you to hear me on this, friends. Grace is personal, but it is not private. It is personal, but it is never 
private. It is such a radical message that it is meant to have. It must have a dramatic impact on the shaping of the world, turning the world upside down. And that's what this message is about. Grace changes everything. That's the heart of this letter. It changes us personally. It changes our relationships. And ultimately, it even begins to change the very social order of the world that we live in. Grace changes everything, okay? So I wanna look at that, how grace produces social change that Paul envisions in this letter. And so I just wanna look at two things with you. First, um, the power for social change. And then second, the dynamic of social change, how it works, the power and the dynamic. Are y'all, are y'all with me here today? Yeah, you know, are your brains frozen? I, I hope not. Okay, first, let's talk about the power for social change. I wanna go back and look at verse six, uh, which I looked at two weeks ago, but I wanna look at it with you again. It says this, I pray that the partnership that springs from your faith may effectively lead you to recognize all the good things that work in us leading us into the Messiah. Now, I bolded that word, the partnership, because that is the Greek word koinonia, okay? Let's all say that together, because it's fun to say. Koinonia, koinonia. It means sharing or partnership or mutual participation. Paul, what Paul's getting at, he loves this word. He uses it in all of his letters. What he's getting at is that for each person who has responded to the good news of God's grace in Jesus, we have now become equal sharers and equal participants in the benefits of God's great mercy to us in the person of Jesus. We are, we are receiving it together. We are in koinonia, right? Kids, I was trying to think of a good example for you to understand this and for the big people. Um, but, and, and so here's what I came up with. Let's say you're in class with your teacher at school and your teacher says, hey kids, I have a gift for each of you. Each of you get a trip to Disney World, which would be amazing, right? Uh, and except, the teacher goes on to say, here's the only catch, all of us are gonna go together. Now, I don't know what teacher in their right mind would, would, would do that, and, and yet the idea is this, is that it doesn't matter whether a kid uh, is getting C's or getting A's, or whether a kid is a jock or a nerd, or whether a kid is loud or quiet, or it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you even like the other kids. You are all together experiencing and participating in this gift of grace from your teacher. That's koinonia. It is a shared experience of grace. Does that make sense? And so Paul's idea is that now for every person who receives God's gift of grace, we are equal participants and shares in the gift of koinonia. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or Jew or Gentile or successful or unsuccessful or young or old or male or female. We are all equal sharing in this common need for forgiveness, equally having received God's kindness. Now, here's the key. Here's the big key, okay? Koinonia for Paul is not just a theological concept for us to ponder. Hmm, koinonia, fun to think about. No, it's not, it's not just a concept, a theological doctrine. It is actually something we're called to do. It's something that we are to carry out, to live out in community. I love the way that um, the, the great scholar N.T. Wright puts it. He says, justification by faith, which of course is the great doctrine that you are justified, made right with God through Jesus by grace, justification by faith must result in fellowship by faith. What that means is that grace has created this new community of safe sinners. And so no Christian has the right anymore to refuse welcome to someone else that God has received. That's koinonia. So in verse 17, Paul says to Philemon, 
hey man, if you are truly a partner, and guess what word that is? Koinonia. If you are a partner, a sharer in the koinonia with me, then welcome Onesimus as if he were me. Welcome him, as he said earlier, no longer as a slave, but as a brother, a fellow sharer of grace in the koinonia of the Messiah. Paul is talking about this all the time in his letters, how grace has created this radical new koinonia. He says in uh, Galatians 3, uh, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are what? All one in the Messiah. And he says in Colossians 3, something similar. In God's new koinonia, in God's new family, People are not Greek or Jewish, circumcised or uncircumcised, male or female, slave or free, but the Messiah is all and is in all. In other words, I mean, just think about this. It, this was a society that was so rigidly stratified by class and race. And Paul says all the codes, all the categories, all of the ways that we divvy up power in the world, all the ways that we tribalize and separate out there, in here, none of that is relevant that we are equal in the koinonia of the Messiah, and that creates a different kind of community. Can, now, can, can y'all begin to see how revolutionary this would have been in the ancient world? In a society that was as stratified it was, as it was fixed in a concept of, of ontological social class, in a, in a society that didn't even have a concept of human dignity and equality, can you, can you understand how a doctrine like this that sees the equality of all people as equal opportunity to receive God's grace, can you see how this could have just gone off in a revolutionary way in the ancient world? Because it did. It did. How, how, how might this be revolutionary for our lives today, this idea of koinonia? Well, here's a, here's a thought. In our world, in our society today of identity, politics, and cancel culture, um, it is so easy, isn't it? It is so easy to think of ourselves according to the identity categories that are pushed upon us all the time, right? Upper class versus lower class, boomer versus millennial, right versus left, Democrat versus Republican, woke versus anti-woke, right? All of, we put ourselves in these groups, we define ourselves in these ways, and we define others over and against us. But God's grace, the good news is that God's grace has created a new kind of humanity, and your, your new identity as someone who belongs to the Messiah now supersedes all other identities. You are no longer primarily Jew or Gentile, American or Chinese. You are no longer primarily Republican or Democrat or lawyer or teacher or even north of the river or south of the river, right? right? Which is you know, really crazy, Richmond, right? While all, of, while all of those things are still true of you, they are no longer the primary bedrock foundation of your identity because you are now bound together in Christ with people who may not share any of those things with you, but who share something far more important that you are common receivers of God's generous grace. Does that, does that make sense? You know, this, um, this, this binary that Paul often uses, um, Greek or Jew, circumcised or circumcised male or female, it's really just code for your opposite, right? Your opposite, the person you don't like, 
the person that is really different than you, the person that you have a hard time being around. And I want you to think about who is your opposite? Who is your opposite ethnically, um, socially, politically, uh, worship preferentially? Like what, who, who is your opposite? Because I guarantee you there is someone in that category in this room today. And this is one of the most profound marks of the new humanity of the church that you receive those who you might never have chosen to be with as fellow brothers and sisters in God's new koinonia through Christ. And I, I just wanna call us to this family. It's, you know, 2024 is gonna be some kind of year, right? And I wanna call us to this church family that the true Jesus-centered community must be marked by a lack of tribalism, a lack of prejudice of people who are of different personalities and races and politics and classes because we, we've stopped dividing and vetting and judging and stratifying the world like they do out there in here as the church. Jesus has torn down the dividing walls through the cross and we are the new koinonia, the new family, common receivers of God's grace in Jesus. Koinonia has turned the social categories of the world upside down. And that's who we're called to be. Okay, do you, are, hello, are you with me? Yes, yes. Okay, um, okay, so that's the engine, grace creating koinonia. That's the engine for social change. But how does this work? Like we've seen the, the power for it. How, what's the dynamic of social change? Well, I want you to look carefully at how Paul handles this issue of Onesimus' emancipation, his manumission as a slave. What we see Paul doing here is very, very brilliant, very nuanced. He never like gets out his big moral bully stick and says, hey man, slavery's bad, stop it, stop it. He never does that. Instead, what he does is he pushes Philemon to come to his own conclusions as he invites him to work through the implications of grace on his vocation, on his life, on his identity, on his household. So look at verse eight. He says, I could be bold, friend, and order you to do what you know you must do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. And then verse 21, he says, confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I'm asking you. Any of y'all parents in here, you've done this tactic before, right? Your kid, you say to your kid, now, I know you do not want to share your toys, but in our family, we're committed to sharing, we're committed to generosity, we even believe that nothing we have is actually our own. So if you think about all of those things, what do you think you should do? Right, <laughs> right? That, I mean, that, that's a great, it's a great parenting tactic. You know, you wanna help them to come to their own conclusions, and this is Paul, a wise spiritual father, saying, look, man, Look, little Phil, you know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what you should do. But look, if God, I just want you to think about this, okay? If God has showered his mercy and his grace on both of us, both you and Onesimus, if both of you are sinners saved by grace, if both of you have been reconciled to God and to each other through the cross, if both of you have equal standing before God and there is no difference of status, hmm, what do you think you should do? I'll leave it up to you. Oh, and by the way, verse 22, prepare a guest room for me because I'm coming in a month, right? <laughs> so, you know, seriously, like, I mean, how long? I just imagine this, how long? I mean, I just love thinking about Philemon. I mean, how long do you think he could have had Onesimus in his household 
as a former slave, but now a brother in Christ, sharing in a common meal, sharing in the Eucharist, sharing in the prayers of the people, sharing in this common life of faith. How long do you think that evil class-based, oppressive, humans owning other human system could hold up in a context and a culture of grace? Not very long, because it didn't. So see friends, grace doesn't just change the soul. It doesn't just change us personally. It's the seed of social revolution. Grace challenges social conventions and values of the society around us. Grace actually turns the world upside down. Now, some of you, I wanna get real, because I mean, some of you, um, I talk to um, you know, a lot of young people about the Bible and um, it, 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 sometimes the Bible is really hard to read and it feels offensive at times. And some of you might be asking, why didn't Paul just denounce slavery and call for its abolition, right? I mean, and you might be familiar with other places in the New Testament, like in Ephesians 5, where Paul tells slaves to obey their masters. And, and, and you know, when we read that, we, we, we flinch, right? Because we are reading it through the lens and the story and the memories of the transatlantic slave trade and the horrific ordeals of chattel-based, race-based slavery, right? Like, how do, how, do we make, how do we make sense of that? Well, this is where I heard Tim Mackey give a great talk about this, the guy from Bible Project. This is why it's so vital for us to be Bible students and to always carefully study the Bible in its original context and culture, working hard to take off our own cultural glasses through which we see the world, through our own period and time in history, and understand the Bible in its original time and context. We talked last week about how slavery was very different in the ancient world in America. Slavery in the ancient world was not race-based. It was often temporary. It was often as a result of debt, someone working their way out of bankruptcy, for example. But another huge difference uh, between the ancient world and ours in the context was the political environment. If you think, I just want you to think about this. Think of all the heroes that we think of in the modern day times as it relates to emancipation. People like William Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, they lived in a time and culture where there was actually a process in place where they could actually gain momentum and work towards real structural and legal change. Do you know what that process is called? Democracy, yes, <laughs> democracy. Um, but in Paul's time, oh, no, sir. There's, there's one guy at the top, and do you know what his name is? Caesar, and Caesar's at the top, and whatever he says, go, and you do not cross him. Like, you protest, you go outside, you go in front of Caesar's palace and say, down with Caesar and slavery, you're dead in an hour, <laughs> right? That's just the way it worked back then. And so I just want you to sort of like put yourself in the positions of Paul and these early Christians. They're living as a tiny, persecuted minority in an oppressive, dictatorial state. They have no social or political power. And yet they have this radical new message of grace that has the power to dismantle the whole system of slavery. So what would you do? What would you do if you were them? There's absolutely no chance you can influence people in the top places of power, no chance you can change culture through a legal or political process. What would you do? Well, I tell you what they did. They began to plant little seeds of social revolution within the Christian communities themselves, calling Christians to this new way of koinonia that they might radically receive each other, tearing down the divisions that were out there in the world. So Paul would say like to slaves, for example, okay, so you can't do anything about your status right now, but let me tell you, now you're a true Christian, you no longer belong to your earthly master, but to the Messiah Jesus. And in him you are free. And to masters like Philemon, he would write, now you know that 
No one can belong to any other human being. You are at the same status as your slaves. In the kingdom of Jesus, there is no slave or free. So you figure out what you're supposed to do. And so what Paul is doing is he is quietly undoing the very basis of slavery itself. Y'all, if he had gone into the streets of Rome, you know, waving the abolitionist flag, he'd be dead in an hour and none of us would be here because he was the great apostle to the Gentiles, right? Instead, Paul started little communities of Jesus followers that began to practice a radical new Christian ethic of koinonia and slowly their influence began to spread all over the ancient world. Put, put it this way, say, um, say you wanted to break up a big piece of concrete slab, okay? There's two ways you could do it. First, you could take a sledgehammer and, and you could just start like bashing it to pieces. But then someone could just come right up behind you and pour a new slab and it would be exactly the same. Another thing though you could do somehow is you could plant a seed under the slab of concrete. Y'all been down to the fan and seen what tree roots do to the sidewalks down there, <laughs> right? right? You could somehow plant maybe an oak tree underneath the slab and give it time. And after many, many years, that tree will begin to push through the slab and ultimately break it apart and actually transform the ground on which it lays so no slab could ever be laid there again, right? And that's the kind of transformation that the gospel ultimately brought. The seed that Paul planted eventually resulted in slavery's destruction. So social historian Rodney Stark writes this, anti-slavery doctrines began to appear in Christian theology soon after the decline of Rome, that's the third century, and were accompanied by the eventual disappearance in all but the fringes of Christian Europe. In modern times, there were very committed Christians like William Wilberforce and Martin Luther King Jr. who were in a time and a place in which God called them to act and they were able to use the democratic and legal processes in order to produce the change that God's grace requires. So Wilberforce himself wrote this, St. Paul directed Philemon to regard Onesimus as a brother by directing him to be treated as a brother, did he not substantially claim for him even more than the freedom that we are asking for from our slaves? And actually, um, slave masters were often, would often give um, slaves a redacted form of the New Testament that excluded the book of Philemon because it was considered to be such a revolutionary document. MLK had this same vision of social change. He said, the arc of the moral universe is long and yet it eventually begins to flower, it bends towards justice. In fact, the great majority of, there's a new book by um, secular historian Tom Holland. I highly commend it. He writes about how the great majority of social transformative movements, such as the hospital movement, the public health movements, public education movements, 19th century women's suffrage movement, the abolitionist movement in the U.S., the 20th century human rights movement, the 20th century pro-life movement, all of these are deeply rooted in a radical Christian ethic that sees human dignity and inequality and, sees inequality and oppression as incompatible with God's vision of humanity through the lens of grace. Grace changes not just people and relationships, but the world itself, turning it upside down. Now, okay, we gotta admit this is not always the case, okay? I don't, I don't wanna stand up here and act like Christian history has been one big, beautiful movement towards human freedom and grace-drenched Dignity. It would be wrong for me to say that, and I especially want to say that to any of you who might be here that are not Christians. Um, I am not. 
I, I am here to not, I am, I, am, I, am, I am preaching Jesus. I am not preaching the church, okay? <laughs> I want you to hear that. There, history is riddled with Christian compromise and hypocrisy when it comes to social change in the way of Jesus. In fact, in our own church, this is the case. Um, you may not know this, but, but our, our founding pastor and numerous of our founding members of Third Presbyterian were, in fact, slave owners. Um, recently, one of our covenant partners who works at the Library of Virginia Archives discovered a sermon preached by our senior pastor in 1861 on the eve of the Civil War in which he denounced uh, Northern abolitionists and he vehemently defended the institution of slavery from the scriptures. You know, the slave trade, the buying and selling of black bodies and the horrific violence and oppression of human beings and the wealth that was built on the backs of Africans and African-Americans against their will. This, I mean, this is such a horrific and shameful part of the American story. And it, and it, and it really grieves me to know that our congregation played a part in its justification. I share this with you, my dear friends, not so that we can look back and judge our brothers and sisters, condemn them, feel superior to them. The major lesson here is how easy it is to breathe in the secondhand smoke of the society around us and how easy it is to assimilate anti-Christian and even evil ways of thinking about fellow human beings into our Christian worldview and often justify them with the Bible and our own spirituality. It should cause us to ask, what, what might we be accepting without any thought? Or, or what, we, what might we be allowing to go unchallenged? Or how might we be wrong, even in our most sincere beliefs? The truth about our history should not in any way cause us to feel smug or self-righteous, but should call us to repentance and humility Asking God, oh Lord, please renew us, show us ways that we may not be allowing the gospel of grace to renew us from the inside out, changing and challenging every part about us. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. So here's the challenge, my dear brothers and sisters. I, think about your life in the world. Think about your relationships at home, at work, in the community. Think about even the, the social orders that you, that you inhabit in your city, in your neighborhood. What does it mean for you to let the gospel of grace challenge the whole of your life. I was so um, appreciative of some, one of you coming to me after the sermon last week and saying, you know what, I, I um, was just so convicted by the message about forgiveness and reconciliation that I just, when you told me to think of somebody, I thought of this person, I couldn't stop thinking about them, and so I knew I had to do something. And so I went and I, and I sought reconciliation and I don't know what's gonna happen, but this, this is, I know God is, is calling me to this. And, and what I want us to see is that these, these radical, these, they seem very small, but these radical acts that Jesus now calls us to because of grace, these radical acts of humility and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation, as small as they seem, eventually may have dramatic impact in busting up the ground on which we're standing on, changing communities itself. Are you letting the gospel of grace change you? How does it challenge the way you think about others, how you treat people, how you handle conflict, the way you think about the poor, how you think about our world? What might you need to rethink and redo in light of the gospel because grace changes everything? 
So let me sum up what we've done the last three weeks. Gosh, a tiny little book with such potent power. Grace changes everything. It changes people. This good news that you are loved radically by God and received by him apart from your performance, that's all you need to become the person that you were meant to be. Grace changes us. Grace changes relationships. When you know that you're a sinner saved by grace and you've been reconciled to God and others through the cross of Christ, it changes the way you handle conflict, calls you into radical acts of forgiveness and reconciliation. And not only that, grace changes the world. As we begin to work grace out in our relationships, we are called together here at Third Church to create a community of koinonia in which the categories out there no longer exist in here, and we are fellow sharers together in the, in, the, in the great gift of God's grace in Jesus. What's our vision as a, as a church? We are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. And the source of that renewal is grace. Not our hard work, not our strategies, not our tenacity and energy, but the grace of God in Jesus. Let's let his grace in. Let's let it change each of us personally. Let's let it change our dynamics and relationships. Let it, let's let it change our community that we might be this community that bears this kind of koinonia light to the world. God has turned the world upside down through Jesus. So if you want to change the world, let's be a part of what Jesus is doing. Let's pray together. We are so grateful, Lord God, for your grace. Oh, to grace, we are such debtors. And we wander from it again and again, and you call us back to it. Would you call us back to your grace in the beginning of this new year that we might be people whose identity is rooted in who we are in Christ as those who are sinners saved by grace. And may everything that we do, the way that we treat others, the way that we handle our conflicts, the way that we build community, the way that we even navigate the complex divisions in our culture and our world. May all of these things be deeply informed by and changed through grace. Would you do this in us this year, we pray in Christ's name, amen.